Evolution gifted humans with minds able to create complex abstractions like language. But what if this ability is manipulated to hold power over others, like a spell cast with black magic? And can we trust reason in our ability to protect ourselves? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. Slight of Mind, the Black Magic of Rhetoric. In the private car on the way to the meeting, Edward felt the exhaustion of a 30-year career weighing on his shoulders. The sinking feeling was not just because his own sales pitch had long since grown exhausting to him, but also he would have to deliver it today to a guy with whom he wasn't exactly excited to associate. Having a clientele of politicians on both sides of the aisle, as well as the highest ranking marketing people from multinational companies to religious organizations alike, left you a Rolodex of some amazing people, but many unsavory characters as well. He was fairly sure this upcoming meeting was with the latter group. To make matters worse, he had the distinct feeling the businessman he was about to meet felt the same way about him. But in business, and especially in politics, you accept lots of meetings you don't actually want to take. It's an occupational hazard by design. This guy was important, and in a way, they needed each other. It was making Edward feel torn. On the one hand, he felt the draw of a somewhat softening worldview. He was getting near retirement age and starting to see perspectives on life from his inevitable deathbed more frequently these days. But on the other hand, there was the overflowing self-confidence that his highly sought after skills could enable a powerful wannabe politician like this guy into changing the country, if not the world. Either way, Edward knew it was going to be a contentious meeting, both internally and externally. The businessman was Thomas Arding. He was running for governor, a powerful role in a crucial state with a critical section of border to a less developed neighboring country. Mr. Arding already had wealth and power, two essential aspects to even enter politics these days. And although he knew how to create a narrative that made people buy things they didn't necessarily need, he lacked the theoretical understanding of rhetoric and propaganda that his political team felt was mandatory. It was also clear that Arding ultimately had his eye on the presidency. It would never be his style, based on his entrepreneurial history, to stop at a governor's role when greater power was possible. Weaving marketing tales could bring business success, but knowing what makes an emotional, charismatic speaker and selling a vision that might be entirely smoke and mirrors was an altogether different game. And if hired, it would be Edward's job to guide him through the required dark arts, like a wizard in a black cloak somewhere behind the curtain. Edward was a man widely known in political circles as the magician, one of the great wizards of turning absurd and weak ideas into easily believable truths. This once flattering nickname had begun to lose its charm, and it wasn't merely the problem of growing weary with his own shtick or thoughts of his questionable legacy. It was actually more personal than that. If you'd asked him a few years ago about his life, he'd genuinely be able to say everything was great. He had a career he loved and a son whose practical life education Edward took quite personally, when he made the time to be involved, that is. But in the last two years, everything had been going downhill. He was feeling less inspired by his career and relationships than in prior years, and his relationship with his son had deteriorated. They had argued a lot over the last year, and his son had recently notified him he would not be going back to college this year without much explanation as to why, what he'd be doing, or where he'd be living. It bothered Edward every day, and their communications had fallen off sharply ever since. 
As his black car was nearing Mr. Arting's office, Edward spoke aloud to himself as he caught a mysterious reflection of himself in the smoke-colored windows. I'm capable of manipulating the emotions of millions of people en masse, yet when it comes to my own son, I really don't have any idea what to do to reach him. He tried to shake off the frustration as he leaned forward to give his driver instructions about what the rest of the day entailed before exiting the car. Mr. Arding was in his office, standing confidently behind his desk when Edward entered. They shook hands and briefly discussed the common friends and colleagues who had introduced them. They were both skilled in the game, so neither man let on the apparent distaste they both felt. Edward then cut the politics and moved into what he had planned for the discussion. Edward would first tell him about the basics of rhetoric found in ancient Greece. The introduction would serve as the foundation for understanding what a great speaker could and should be. Next, they would discuss conformism. In other words, they would be looking at how an individual mind works when they are part of a bigger group. Finally, Edward would help Arting begin to manipulate, with a simple wave of the right verbal magic wands, some of the key logical fallacies enabling him to juggle people's emotions and reason. In short, he would be showing Mr. Arting how to get people so emotionally drawn into his messaging that they voted for him with their hearts and not their minds. Ultimately, he would prove through these tricks and magic spells that this was the only way to win elections. Actually trying to win arguments was, in fact, the game that losers played. It wasn't until this last part that Arting seemed interested. He said, good, at least learning to win and why this is different than business is actually part of this agenda. I don't really see the need for this meeting as I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and I know all about emotional selling using copywriting, marketing, and PR. But my staff insisted you're the best at something valuable to me. A magician, they said. I'm short on time and long on people who want to take it from me. So please, let's make the time count. It was clear Arding was used to being the boss and calling the shots. But Edward went on, almost as if the comment wasn't received, fully intending to give him his entire pitch, psychological and philosophical theories and all. He knew from decades of breaking down strong emotional barriers like this one that methodical and thorough always won both the emotional and intellectual race. Yes, my nickname isn't entirely without warrant. Fallacies and propaganda are quite similar to magic tricks, Edward said as he smoothly transitioned from his agenda directly into his well-worn and finely honed presentation of these ideas. He continued, A magician fools reason by misdirecting the attention to one point, while the important part is happening somewhere else. In this way, an untrained mind easily succumbs to magic, which is often nothing more than a simple sleight of hand. Or, in the case of what we'll be doing for your campaign, a not-so-simple sleight of mind. Arding was suspicious of Edward's words as he asked, So you're telling me I need to become David Blaine to become a governor? Maybe I should have hired him to tutor me and not you. I'm guessing he wouldn't even cost as much based on the bid you provided. Edward sliced through Arding's rudeness with a question. What do people say about carrots, Mr. Arding? What are they good for? Arding seemed surprised. Excuse me? What kind of question is that? I thought I made it clear I didn't have time to waste. Edward paused and, with a cold professional gaze, leveled at the man he now considered to be his student, said, Mr. Arding, you know I come to you on the highest levels of recommendation from your inner circle. My reputation precedes me. So if you would, please trust that I'm not here to waste time either. If I ask you a question, or lead you down any particular path, you can know there is a method to my seeming madness. 
And after another strong, purposeful pause, he continued, So I'll ask again, what are carrots good for? Being put in his place wasn't a typical scenario for Arting, but it was clear who had control of the conversation now. Nevertheless, he snapped back. I suppose the answer you're looking for is that they're good for your eyes. Never having cared to research their nutritional value, this is the first thing that comes to mind. Exactly, Edward answered. Almost everybody believes that. We can say that nobody questions this piece of information. But let me tell you a quick story. During World War II, the United Kingdom defended itself quite well against the Nazis, partially because the UK is an island, and partially because the UK perfected radar technology, which enabled them to take down Nazi airplanes even when nobody knew they were coming. Of course, they had to cover up the existence of this technology so the Nazis wouldn't use it against them. So what the UK did was publish propaganda about a story of a pilot named John Cat Eyes Cunningham. Cunningham supposedly took down 20 airplanes by night thanks to his superhuman power of night vision. And how did he get this power? Well, as the UK didn't want to reveal their technological secret, they published fake research on the benefits of carrots for our vision. Naturally, they also made sure everyone knew Cunningham loved to eat carrots. Germans weren't the only ones fooled, but British people as well, and soon the whole world, you included. You see, Mr. Arding, if a story gets repeated enough times, even one as ridiculous as this, you'll slowly witness a lie turn into a 100% truth. This power of repetition, a little psychological trap left over from evolution called the illusory of truth, that by simply knowing the alchemy of it, you can concoct into spells of all varieties. And once it has become the truth, you no longer have to worry about the fact that it's a complete lie and people will reinforce it over and over. Well, Arding replied, it's an interesting story, but I don't have years to wait for a lie to become a truth. I need to become the governor in the next election. Of course, Edward replied. But the propaganda example was for you to realize how simple everything can be. So let's move into a short introduction to rhetoric, shall we? Rhetoric originated in ancient Greece and was actually seen as a noble practice of effective and functional arguing. It was so respected because it was the practice through which most people came to new conclusions and ideas. According to Greek philosophers, the pillars of good rhetoric are logos, ethos, and pathos. This is the first thing I'd like you to remember. Logos stands for appealing to the people with logic and truth. Ethos is the ability to move the crowd because you prove to them you are someone with a strong ethical center. Finally, pathos is the ability to creatively explain your argument, either through stories or metaphors that touch them emotionally. I trust you can see the potential of using these three pillars in your campaign. Your words need to be logical and true. You need to be a credible person who stands for what is right. And you need to be creative to touch people's hearts. And this part's important. This all still works even if it's truth and credibility created by you, as I just explained through the carrot story. So same as with magic where you don't need actual magical powers for people to believe you're performing magic, you also don't need to be truthful and compassionate. In other words, you only need to make people think your words are honest and trustworthy. Mr. Arding answered with a smirk. And I suppose it's people like you who turn this noble practice into a dishonest business? Basically, you're telling a businessman he needs to lie to succeed. That's really nothing new, if you ask me. Edward answered, Yes and no. It's more than just lying. Lying can bring you only so far. But if you manage to control the thin line between the truth and a lie, you can accomplish much more. And here's the best part. Eventually, you won't even have to do anything. People will convince themselves to trust you because they've invested so much in your lies. Nobody wants to end up 
looking like a fool. So even if people find out you've been lying, a great percentage of them will still support you. Why? Because people are scared to admit they were wrong. This psychology has become incredibly easy to manipulate in our brave new world of personality by social media. People now publicly post opinions every second. And these opinions are many times ones they are just regurgitating because it sounds like something they might believe without really researching it further. So instead of admitting they were wrong to have posted a fact about some truth, which might have been invented by the likes of you, they instead double down and post even more spurious information to reinforce the lie further. And then everyone they're connected to has the potential to do the same. Let me give you another example. In Greek mythology, there was Pythia, an oracle giving prophecies that would help kings and warriors win wars. One of our most famous prophecies went like this. You will go, you will return, never in war will you perish. What would you say this prophecy means? Mr. Arding thought about it for a moment. I'm not sure, but I'm hoping it won't be another carrot story. His sarcastic reply was transparent, however, as it was clear he was starting to get more intrigued. Seeing right through the remark, Edward continued on without pause, like a highly trained boxer continuing on after an opponent had just turned his back to the ropes. You see, Pythia's prophecy is purposely ambiguous. Depending on where you put the punctuation marks, the sentence has different meaning. So it can either be, you will go, you will return, never in war will you perish, or you will go, you will return never, in war will you perish. If you also consider that Pythia had ethos, meaning people believed Pythia was indeed an oracle, you can understand why people believed her. She had influence, and even more importantly, you can't say she lied, can you? Yes, I get it, Arding said with a smile. Edward continued, Since we're already on the topic of war, I'd like to teach you another important element, which needs to be your goal in the campaign. In war, you always have two sides fighting one another, us against them. This is what you need to create, an atmosphere where people feel there's an enemy, but not an enemy who's a human same as you. That wouldn't be enough. You do this in business, of course, with your competition, but in politics, it's different. It's necessarily dirtier, nastier, and even less scrupulous. In politics, like in war, it needs to be completely black and white, with the enemy completely stripped of humanity. The enemy must become a cold-blooded wolf, hungry for your people's blood. A wolf who will mercilessly eat even its children if it has to. This is where your rhetoric skills will be crucial. Mr. Arding replied, I like that, but let me tell you something. In my business, I get all kinds of people. Some people really need my products. But if my multinational company were to just depend on people who need what we're selling, we'd be out of business, or we certainly wouldn't grow. And I wouldn't be standing here right now with the money and power to run for this office. So a large majority of customers we convince into buying things they don't really need based on the promise of it fixing or upgrading some part of their life they're vulnerable to think needs fixing. I know it's the same in politics. Some people fall for the lies, some don't. So I want to ask you something. Do you believe what you're saying is enough to fool a desirable number of people? Edward answered without hesitation. You're right. Not everybody falls for the trick. But let me tell you about a recent study. Researchers at Stanford's Graduate School of Education have shown that more than 80% of middle school students can't tell real news from fake news. In other words, more than 80% of them don't have a mind that thinks critically. That's the next generation of voters, of course, and it's likely a similar percentage in the current voter pool. Let's face it, the schools haven't gotten better. 
Overall, they've gotten worse, and critical thinking isn't on the curriculum almost anywhere in middle or high schools. How many kids do you know who understand reason and logical discourse? What's even better for our purposes, the 20% fall under the pressure of the majority. Let's say you have 10 people. We'll stick to the middle school kids since we have that data. But adult psychology isn't all that different. 8 out of 10 sincerely believe the fake news, so only 2 are questioning the information. If the people questioning the authenticity are a minority, the majority will attack the minority. This is just human nature. And this time, you don't even need your magic wand, because they love to attack one another's ideas, especially when the bandwagon isn't entirely full yet. What's even better, they will feel insecure about their own reason, and their doubt won't be focused on the false information, but on themselves. This is called conformism. Mr. Arding smiled. Yes, I'm aware of situations like that. I just didn't know it had a name or research behind it. Go on, please. Edward continued. Some time ago, an interesting conformism experiment was done in psychology. The Ash Conformity Experiments, done by Solomon Ash, were a series of tests that wanted to find out how individuals behave under the pressure of majority. In a group of eight participants, only one was the real subject, while the other seven were actors hired by Ash. Participants went through 18 trials, and in each one, they were first shown a single vertical line, and then three vertical lines of a different length. One line was identical to the first, while the other two were shorter or longer. Ash carefully placed the participants so the real subject would answer last. In the course of 18 trials, actors would sometimes give the correct answer, and sometimes they would all give the obviously wrong answer. The goal here was to see how many subjects would yield to the pressure of the first seven answering wrong. The result was 5% of the participants always yielded to the pressure, meaning they always answered wrong when the actors did so, while 25% always answered right even when the actors were giving the wrong answer. The rest conformed in some tests, while some they didn't fall under the actor's influence. Mr. Arding replied suspiciously, Yes, I get it. People yield to pressure, even when they likely know it's the wrong thing to do. But 5% isn't something you'd exactly call a landslide or a majority. What can I do with 5%? Edward answered, clearly disappointed. Look at it like this, Mr. Arding. Let's take the full U.S. population for presidential elections as a simple example. The number of Americans eligible to vote is around 220 million. 5% of that is around 11 million. So that's almost 11 million people who'd succumb to the pressure. You realize, of course, how slim the margins are on close elections in the U.S. In recent elections, it's not been millions, but tens of thousands of the right voters that swayed elections. On top of that, think about the fake news example. When there's actually a majority, human nature will likely pull the conformism even more drastically than 5% because of other social and psychological factors at play. Harding's face started to light up. I think I understand. It's all starting to make sense. So how do we leverage all this information? Edward looked at Arding and said, well, it's a methodical process that will take us months of strategic planning, and then tactics like laser-targeted ad planning on easily manipulated social media populations like Facebook and Twitter. But all this comes later. For now, there are still a few more foundational tricks we need in our magician's bag. We'll only have time to dig into a few here, there are literally hundreds. But now we're starting to get into some of the darker black magic, the fun stuff, clever and purposefully deceiving. Think potions and voodoo dolls instead of just magician's gloves. So let's dig into a few ways to purposely leverage logical fallacies. Everybody uses fallacies, usually on accident, while only a few are aware of doing it on purpose. 
you'll fall into that second category once you become skilled at using them. When you start to use them consciously, you'll realize how powerful they can be. The first one I'll mention is one of the most common ones called ad hominem. Simply put, this is the argument against the person, very common in politics. This is the classic trick to use when you're in a debate and you don't know how to reply. Let's say someone asks you about the educational reforms you promised. If you don't have a valid answer, or if the truth is not going to help you in the debate, you simply say, yes, but my opponent hasn't even finished college, yet he's trying to run for governor? And how will he possibly reform education if he quit the very system he's supposedly trying to reform? You see how clever and insidious this is? People can't help but turn their attention to this unrelated fact you just raised, and most will forget the question and start thinking, whoa, this character didn't even finish college? Human nature and the desire to knock down someone else's character are very predictable, and at this point, it's likely too late for your opponent to even turn it around. Everyone's thinking how this loser ended up on stage without a college degree. This way, you switch the focus to the other person instead of the issue at hand. If you play the trick wisely, it doesn't take much time for people to forget the initial question completely. In other words, when you don't have a satisfactory answer on someone's remark, you hit them where it hurts. And if you get this used on you, you can try to counter it by exposing his fallacy. But you might even be better off to hit him back with a similar ad hominem attack against him, or maybe a different fallacy altogether. Let's talk about a couple more. We could go on all day about these and how to manage them, and when you hire me, we will do exactly that. Another widespread fallacy is called the straw man, an error in logic that is also done both intentionally and accidentally. Let's say you're talking to someone who is a proponent of marijuana legalization. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad, or if you have any cold statistical data specifically on marijuana. Instead, you use psychological warfare. Since most people don't differentiate between marijuana from other drugs, you simply hit them with statistical proof of how drugs more generally kill around 60,000 people per year. And if you want to get nasty, you go one step further and specify opiates as your straw man, which is a hot-button drug well known to be killing a lot of people right now. The key here is to switch the initial topic onto something similar yet different, where you have cold proof and hammer onto an already sensitive emotional nerve. You build a straw man, and then, with perfect timing, you burn down the straw man, who is a representation of your opponent's argument. Although the general data about drugs really doesn't have anything to do with data on marijuana, people will connect these two. As we already discussed, most people don't think critically, so this flies right past them. Well, like magic. Arding replied, and do people fall for that? Are we really that stupid? Without answering, Edward asked, do you know of an old Russian tradition called Hamolkov? No, it doesn't sound familiar, Arding replied. Edward went on. It's an old tradition in Russia, practiced even today. According to this tradition, every Russian child must learn how to use a gun by the age of seven. Before they even start elementary school, they must know how to load, aim, and fire a gun perfectly. For a moment, Arding looked shocked and a little confused. I didn't know that. Wait, is this another trick like the carrots? Edward looked at the businessman with a smile. I see we're making some progress. You're right, Hamilkov doesn't exist as I just made it up. Nevertheless, I could tell by the look on your face that it automatically made you feel worried about the Russians. If I continued nourishing that lie, your worry might turn into anger and that anger might fuel your actions because you'd believe you were right and just. If you combine a fallacy with the crowd conformism, most people will fall for anything. Then we bring out the big guns and we use all these tricks online where we can strategically 
and systematically tap into their exposed to the world narrative-based identities, otherwise known as their online social presence and reputation. Do you understand everything until now? Arting smiled back. I do. I've been doing some of this stuff for years, but not quite strategically like this. I can see that if I learn to wield them consciously, I can get so much more. And the methodical online approach seems brilliant. We haven't even scratched the surface, Edward replied. Let's discuss a couple more, so you can start to see the power of them used in concert and on multiple communications fronts. The next one we'll cover is called the hasty generalization. Let's imagine you see a guy with a mustache robbing an old lady. So you brilliantly conclude that every man with a mustache has an unexplainable urge for stealing purses. In the same way, you can make people come to incorrect generalizations on just about any topic. This one, like most fallacies, is even more powerful when combined with other fallacies and tricks like the us against them tactic we already discussed. Let's say someone of Mexican descent was caught robbing a house and it made the news. Now you can easily imply that it's more likely for someone who's Mexican to rob a house than let's say a Canadian. Perhaps you're trying to pick up voters who are annoyed at what they think are jobs going to Mexican immigrants. Whether their fear is true or not doesn't matter. You're here to exploit the fear, not worry about the truth. It doesn't matter which nationality you choose or which issue you exploit. The psychology is the same. You just twist some recent news story or put some spin on a recent research study to your advantage, leveraging the untrue generalization to get people to misdirect their attention to the wrong thing. Again, like in magic, timing and misdirection is everything. Another common one is the slippery slope argument. The story always goes something like this. If we don't do this and this, then that and that horrible thing will happen. Going back to the previous example, you could say, if we let more immigrants into our country, they will soon be taking it over. This one is great because it creates fear and people start to think about how this horrible predicament might come to a realization. If we don't aggressively stop these people from doing what they want, they will ruin our country and everything we care about. This line of examples, purposely picked by Edward since he knew all about Arding's platform, struck the predictable nerve and Arding answered emotionally. Well, of course they'll ruin it. We've been cowering to other nations and lesser ethnicities for too long and the time has come for all of this to end. Do you know that's something that Hitler would say? Edward asked without emotion in his voice at all. Actually, in a very similar fashion, Hitler explained the Jew problem and used the resultant fear to rise to power. Really? Arding asked. Wait, this is another trick, right? Edward answered, No, Mr. Arding, not this time, I'm afraid. Mr. Arding answered, clearly ashamed. But I'm not like Hitler. I mean, I'm not xenophobic. My main goal is to bring back the balance that this state and this nation has lost. Edward smiled. Okay, so the facts about Hitler's strategic rise to power were true, but I did use a trick on you. What I just used on you was a fallacy called reducto ad Hitlerum, coined by the writer Leo Strauss. It's an attempt to make a person feel ashamed if they have a certain opinion similar to Hitler's. Let's say Hitler was an anti-smoker, pro-animal activist, and a vegetarian. To a person with the same ideals, you could say, do you know that Hitler also hated smoking and innocent animals being tortured and eaten? Oddly enough, all three of these things are true. Hitler was a vegetarian, Nazi Germany was the first country in the world to lead a successful anti-smoking campaign, and they also had strict anti-animal abuse laws. And although being a non-smoker and a vegetarian does in no way make you share Hitler's beliefs, just comparing a person to Hitler will make that person feel bad. I hope you're realizing that with the right training and rhetoric, you only need social media and knowledge on how to manipulate it using all these tricks to win this election.
Mr. Arding looked amazed. Edward, I don't know if I should fear you, hate you, revere you, or hug you. But considering the situation and my tight timing here, I'll have to insist you become my counselor instead. If for no other reason, then I don't want this fucking black magic used against me, as I'm quite sure you've probably already met with my opponent. So what do you say? The one thing I can do that he probably can't is make it worth your while. Edward took a deep breath as he started thinking about his son. That strong doubt from the car ride came back, but the number Arding wrote diminished all that. It was a number almost 50% more than what he'd sent in his draft proposal before the meeting. Edward said yes. An arrogant smile appeared on Mr. Arding's face, and without hesitation, he asked, where do we start? Snapping out of his uneasiness about taking the role, Edward replied, first, we need the foundation. Turning the focus into internal factors by excluding external is the foundation of your campaign. Putting it bluntly, you don't want to keep this state's door open to just anyone, correct? Certainly not, Harding replied. These unrealistic ideas have been the ball and chain of this state for long enough. Under my control, I will reverse the policies making us this pathetic sanctuary state we've become here. And I'll tell you another thing for certain. This country's policies are a whole different story that are in my sights long term as well. Edward replied calmly. Yes, but you can't go directly for the head. That will only make you look foolish. You don't decapitate an issue like this. You create an us-versus-them diversion and blame the biggest problems of the state on this group. You create a false mindset using people's fears and emotions against them. Let's say we were creating the slogan for your campaign. You can't have the slogan say, remove all immigrants. You need to be subtle and give just enough so that people connect two and two on their own, guided by emotion, not logic. Maybe something dramatic like, without the problem, we have our solution. You see, that taps the fears your voters have and says it without saying it. Now that's just off the cuff and probably a little too blunt, but that's the basic idea. I don't know if you've looked carefully at the anti-immigrant groups gathering steam here for the last couple of years, we have to separate ourselves from them. They're dangerous, and they're taking things too far. And the extreme voters aren't who we need to target. But we'll come up with a nice, nasty, but slick rhetorical slogan and strategy over the next few weeks. But we've covered enough ground for today. You've hired me. Now, you just need to trust me. If you do that, I'll show you how emotional messaging, rhetorical tactics, strategically used logical fallacies, and highly targeted social media propaganda will win you this election. Note that the use of facts doesn't even make the list of our top tools. And with that, the meeting ended. Yet Arding's journey into the dark arts of the sleight of mind had just begun. About two years later, Edward was at home, enjoying a glass of whiskey. An old Disney documentary was on TV called The True Life Adventures, and Edward couldn't help but laugh. The documentary was supposedly an attempt to scientifically explain mass fluctuations in lemming numbers, but everything in it was highly inaccurate. What's even worse, the people making the documentary intentionally threw lemmings off the cliff just to prove their made-up truth. Edward always wondered if it would bother all the rabid Disney fans that their favorite company, itself famous for anthropomorphic furry animals, was murdering furry little animals for effect on film. But the magician knew too much about human nature to even need to wonder. The answer is they would either deny it was true or likely just put it out of their minds. But this lie about lemmings being suicidal followers, actually based on the homicide of some innocent animals for effect, had somehow become one of the most overused metaphors in society to describe bandwagon mentality. 
the irony was just too much that he had to laugh out loud. He turned off the TV and checked his phone. Things were finally calm, and if he was being honest, a little boring at the moment. But it was the calm before a coming storm, he thought. With his help, Arding had handily won the election. His jobs are for residents slogan had gone brilliantly and enabled him to grab hold of an emotionally charged voter base. He was even having some success in reversing the immigration policies he so despised. And Arding, for his part, had become quite a wizard under Edwards' tutelage. It was no surprise he'd been a successful businessman. He was a quick study, and he waved around his rhetorical wand now like an old pro. He'd become quite masterful at deceit, and Edward had wondered more than once if he'd created a monster. But this monster had sights on the presidency, the only office Edward had not yet tackled with his skills. Could he really end his career before a pinnacle run for the presidency? As he reviewed his briefings for tomorrow's meetings, the doorbell rang. With a scoff, he checked his watch and headed towards the front of the house. Who in the hell was dropping by at 10 p.m.? He opened the door in exaggerated annoyance. For a few seconds, Edward couldn't believe that his son was in front of him. As his shock dissipated, he also noticed that Elliot was crying, something he couldn't even recall seeing since he was a child. They walked silently into the living room and sat down. I, I don't know where to start, Dad. I'm scared. I didn't want to hurt anyone, I swear. Fatherly love was an emotion Edward had rarely practiced. But for the first time in a long time, the feeling flushed his body. Everything's going to be all right, son. Just tell me what happened. With a quick gaze at his father, then returning his head down to hide the tears, Elliot replied, I, I think I might have killed someone. And just like that, the fatherly emotion immediately mixed with career reputation panic into a chemical soup of stress hormones and panic. You did what? An uncomfortable silence filled the air. Look, Dad, I didn't do it on purpose. I swear. For the next few minutes, Elliot, head down, told his father what had happened. It wasn't the full story. Embarrassed, he also neglected to detail a lot of essential parts. Edward sat in disbelief once the story had ended. He stared at Elliot as if he didn't even know him. Edward's face was a mix of deep disappointment and personal fear. His own son swayed by propaganda, and potentially his whole career sunk by it. This time, unlike with the Lemmings, the irony burned like a hot poker to the eye. What in the hell is wrong with you? Everything you were duped by is fake news and propaganda. Edward's career had just collided with his personal life in a fiery crash, and as a result, he clicked back into work mode. He raised his voice and lectured Elliot in the way he would a client. I taught you how to spot an illogical argument and, equally important, learn how to dispute them properly. How many times did I tell you about the insidious nature of modern propaganda and the social media algorithms that are stacking the deck against you. Critical thinking skills are like simple fallacy detection and should be required learning in primary school and are, in fact, almost entirely absent in education curriculum today. But you, Elliot, I've been teaching all of this to you for years. You know full well that you are being duped every single day in an ever more rhetoric and fallacy-ridden media, consumer culture, and politics by deception environment. Most people have no idea because the perpetrators are very clever and rhetoric trained, and most can't spot a logical fallacy even if someone hit them over the head with it. But my God, son, not you. Tell me this is some kind of twisted joke, please. Elliot still hadn't picked his head up fully as he replied with a stutter. It's just, I guess I wanted to be part of something important. And the messaging came through some friends I thought I trusted online. I just, 
I wanted to help get rid of the problem. Because, you know, without the problem, we have our solution. The words stopped Edward in his tracks. He was a political master, so it didn't show on his face. But there was no mistaking it. Elliot had just used the exact wording from the campaign slogan he'd given Arding as an example in their first meeting. But how could his son know that line? It was only mentioned as an example, and as far as he could remember, they never discussed it again. Could it simply be a coincidence? Although his son was still talking, finally disclosing more important parts of the story, Edward's thoughts became way louder as he slowly connected the dots and probed all possible angles. Edward blankly stared at the wall as if the feelings in him slowly dispersed like the puff of smoke a magician uses to create a temporary distraction. He almost forgot that his emotionally crushed son was still there. Steadily, the sinister sharp look of a dangerous man returned to his eyes with a single goal in mind. He had to find out. Dad, are you listening to me? No, Elliot, you listen to me. Stop talking. I don't want to know any more details. It's better if I don't. I'll fix this. Go home, keep quiet, and go dark for a while until I figure this out. Filled with neglect and rage, Elliot yelled, and you wonder why we don't talk anymore? Is this just a game to you that you think you can win like one of your precious elections? This is my life we're talking about here. But Edward had already stopped listening. Hours later, in the silence of the empty house, Edward's breathing and the quiet clicking of his keyboard were the only sounds in the room. Since Elliot had left, he'd been replaying various past conversations with his son, the governor, with his staff, in his head for clues. Had that even been the exact wording? Was he imagining all of this? Next, he went to the news media in Google to search. Perhaps he'd actually heard that phrase elsewhere, but nothing obvious came up. He even thought to single out the websites of the leading anti-immigrant groups looking for the wording. Nothing. He joined all of their subscription newsletters to search for clues. What should have been the real source of concern, his son's future, was a distant second to this unstoppable train of thoughts. When his thoughts did leave this puzzle, and the related worries about ending his career, and turn back to Elliot. His thoughts were of disappointment instead of paternal fear and compassion. Was his messaging not even good enough to train his own son to be shielded from fake news? This led to a cascade of questions about what he'd spent his life doing. Can we trust reason? Or can we trust ourselves to reason? Or can we even understand the illogical reasoning thrown at us every day? Why does reason break down, get ignored, or get overpowered by emotional rhetoric in modern society? What rhetorical weapons and logical fallacies are the biggest problems short-circuiting people's ability to reason? Do people notice, even if it's just for a second, the daily misdirections? Or do they even care? Would critical thinking tools as a defense help people from being duped all the time? And this led his mind to the ultimate question of what happened with Elliot. The reality was that just pointing out fallacies, rhetoric, and propaganda to someone isn't enough. Edward had seen this pattern so many times. If you tell someone you're arguing with that they are arguing poorly, for example, if you tell someone they're using a straw man argument, and don't realize it. Instead of making them change their position, it usually just pisses them off. People hate being wrong, and logic, sadly, isn't obvious to a lot of people. So the reality is, it isn't hard to feed people with rhetoric and the use of purposeful fallacies to deceive. Few people will ever take the news that they're not thinking clearly very well. So even people armed with logic are at a considerable disadvantage today because rhetoric is so much more tasty for the mind to consume. How should he have taught Eliot to fight rhetoric with reason, since reason, in the face of unhinged 
and unlimited fake news is at a huge disadvantage. Edward snapped out of the internal lecture he'd been giving himself. He hadn't gotten anywhere, really, and he needed some sleep. As he was about to close down his laptop, an email notification dinged. He clicked over to his email client, and as he stared at the screen, he nearly fell off his chair. One of the anti-immigrant groups he'd joined had accepted his fake application. The initial email appeared to be filled with all sorts of hate, but it wasn't the predictable propaganda and imagery in the email that terrified him. Instead, it was the subject line of the email, all in bold caps that drained the blood from his face. Without the problem, we have our solution. As Edward sat frozen in the quiet dark, wearing his robe with the gray glow of the screen on his face, he looked every bit the magician. Although, in fact, he actually looked more like the dark wizard in a movie, a hacker of the dark arts, realizing things had gone too far. His first thought was to wish he could hide his head in the sand like an ostrich, except he knew that, like lemmings, ostriches don't actually do this. It was just another stupid thing that everyone believes. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.